Join me in the book of Acts. I am delighted to begin this new series in the book of Acts this morning. Taking a big chunk, verses 1 through 3. I anticipate that this series will take off a little slow, like an airplane, but it will do larger chunks and not spend uh, 10 years in Acts. Although it could be worth uh, that kind of a study. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We, we bless you for sending your son to die for sinners like us. We ask that you would send him again soon. In the meantime, he is with you at your right hand, ruling and reigning. You're putting his enemies under his feet, and his kingdom is being spread throughout the world. And we're honored and we tremble at the idea that you would call us meager men and women to be instruments. And how we would love it if he were here with us in body. If he would even knock down all his enemies to the ground with one word like he did that night in the garden um, when they came to arrest him. But his way is the way of the cross. And it's there that true victory was won. So now in his absence we miss him, we love him. Remind us, however, that through his Holy Spirit and his word, his ministry to us and through us persists that he went away so that the Helper could come. But yet he is with us to the end of the age. May we today and through this series and acts progressively grow in our boldness and humility and our zeal and patience as we are empowered by Christ's ongoing ministry to spread his gospel across uh, the, the globe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. This is Luke, the companion of Paul, the beloved historian of the church, author of the uh, Gospel of Luke as well. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Acts is the story of how a few... Jewish radicals who were able to launch a few ideas from Jerusalem that became a multinational religion in 28 chapters. It's the story of the laying of the foundation that we continue to build on today. It's the story of how Jews and Gentiles both began to inhabit the same kingdom. It's the story of how the kingdom of heaven began to come to earth. 
So as we look at the world around us, perhaps in exasperation, we may begin to wonder, is Jesus really reigning? Is he really acting? And can he really use sinful and weak people like me and like you? Through the series, as we witness his acts in the first century church, I pray that we'll be left with an unshakable confidence that he is continuing to act in our day. In and through his same spirit and through us, building on that same foundation that was laid by the apostles. So Acts is really the story of a king or the king and his beloved kingdom. My plan for this morning is uh, to give a few contextual details and a little bit of an introduction to the book of Acts and then go through this prologue, these first three verses. And first we'll see um, that Luke wrote uh, the book of Acts as volume two, the first volume being Luke, in which uh, he, in Acts, he begins to, to, or in Luke rather, he begins to recount um, the first phase of Jesus' ministry. And now in Acts, he begins to recount the second phase of Jesus' ministry, his heavenly ministry. And then secondly, we'll see how he went about preparing his apostles, his chosen uh, missionaries, to be the builders of the foundation of the kingdom of God on earth. So first, let's look at the ongoing ministry of Jesus. Uh, The first mention of codices, that is, um, stacks of writing material bound like a book rather than a scroll, the first mention of that is in the first century, and it was really several centuries before books began to replace scrolls. The scroll of Romans, they estimate, would have been about 11 feet long. Romans is about 7,100 words. Now, uh, Luke and Acts are 19 plus thousand and 18 plus thousand words, respectively. So, for Luke, the historian, to have written his history in one volume, it would have required roughly 63 feet of scroll. That's a lot of scroll. That requires probably more than one person to handle. So they're really the same history, but they had to be broken up practically. Um, Luke uh, is pretty universally considered to be the author of Luke and Acts. Um, famously, the pronouns change through Acts from from uh, third person he, like he, he Paul, and, and they, to all of a sudden, randomly, first person, we. And so clearly the author was at points a companion of Paul on his journey. So that kind of narrows down the list. Um, the, the Greek in Acts is some of the most polished in the Bible. Uh, it's really more toward the, toward the classical side than the koine or common side. And so clearly this person was educated. Um, Luke was a Gentile. Probably Greek was his native tongue. He was also a physician. So he, he, he matches uh, the bill there. And... Moreover, the, the early church is pretty unanimous in, in saying Luke was the author of Luke and Acts. <clears throat> he likely wrote the book in the early 60s, uh, sometime before Nero's persecution of Christians. He kind of he leaves us hanging. Paul is in prison awaiting his trial, but he, he doesn't tell us what happened to Paul, which likely Paul was, was uh, beheaded 
during the persecution of Nero in 64 AD. He begins volume two of his history in this way. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Acts is, is, like Luke, addressed to this person, Theophilus. We know a Theophilus, Theo. Uh, and, and truth be told, no one knows who this person is. There's a lot of speculation. His name means lover of God. And so some have speculated that this is kind of like code. Um, this is to a church or something. But there's probably not a reason for that because this is prior to the persecution of Nero. So why would he write in code? Um, uh, in, in Luke, he addresses him as um, excellent Theophilus. Um, so it, it's probable or, or that that was a way of speaking to superiors, to people who held an office. So it's, it's likely that this person may have been some kind of office holder, maybe in the Roman government. And some have speculated that he maybe even was the patron of Luke in financing him to write his histories. But there's no way of knowing that for sure. But clearly this person cared about Jesus, what happened to Jesus, and then what happened in the first century church. So he tells Theophilus that in the first volume he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So there is a break between the books, and it's not just to keep the scrolls from getting unwieldy. Uh, there's a thematic shift between the two books, uh, and that word began is very interesting. He dealt in Luke with in the Gospel of Luke with all he began to do and teach. That's an interesting word. There's a lot of redemptive historical import packed into that little word. I mean, Luke is a robust account of Jesus' life. It begins with his birth and ends with his uh, ascension. So why does he say all that he began to do and teach? Luke sees volume two of his history, the book of Acts, as phase two of Jesus' ministry. His ministry is no longer earthly, he, he no, no longer walks among us, but surely he's not absent from us entirely. He, he now occupies a ministry whose seat is in heaven, and yet that ministry touches earth. The prophet, priest, and king who walked among us is still the prophet, priest, and king. He's in heaven in glory. So the book has been called uh, historically the Acts of the Apostles, which makes sense. Um, it's an appropriate title, reflecting Luke's role as the church's historian uh, in recounting the people and events uh, of the first century. But there's more than people and events. These men, you know, mere fishermen were preaching the gospel in power. They were doing miracles. So there's more than just people and events. So some have taken to calling the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit which is an appropriate title as well. But if we can go one step farther, we, we ask, um, from whom has the mission come? Who sent his Holy Spirit? Who, who commissioned the preaching of the gospel? Who is the focus of that gospel? So my favorite title for Acts would be something a little bit more puritanical in length. Uh, but the ongoing acts of the heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ. It doesn't maybe roll off the tongue as well, but I think that captures what Luke indicates here in verse verse one, that in Luke, he, be, he, he, he 
dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, and now he's going to deal with what he's continuing to do and teach. So Acts really is the story of how Jesus, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, is with his people, is with us to the end of the age as we make disciples, as we disciple the nations. And it's the story of the apostles. And it all began in Jerusalem and spread to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All in 28 chapters. Really, the story of Acts is the story of the Great Commission. So I wonder if we think of ourselves in that, in that way as instruments in the hands of the minister who is in heaven. I mean, when we look around the world, perhaps in ex- exasperation, and think, I can't fix this. Uh, well, it's not the plumber. Or it's the plumber's job to fix the pipe, not the wrench, right? So, what if we stop, began to see ourselves more as tools, as vessels of this heavenly minister, people to be filled with a life-giving word and Holy Spirit, and then poured out, poured out on the nations? We overcomplicate things when we think we have to fix the world or when we think it's up to us to build the kingdom. We do not build the kingdom. The, ki- the king builds the kingdom. Yeah. Now, that said, he builds the kingdom in and through us, and that's a very important distinction. And what a privilege it is to be used as instruments in the hands of, of the minister whose ministry here on earth is ongoing, even though... He's in heaven. So he will build his church. That's the promise. He raises countries. He tears countries down. He gives. He takes away. But the church, he says, the church he will raise up. And his chosen means is the word of the gospel spoken by us, received from the apostles who were carried along by the Holy Spirit and sent by Jesus himself. Now, before Jesus left earth, he began to uh, kind of, if they're the foundation builders, he, he began to do the, the dirt work with, with them before he left. Between the time of his resurrection and his ascension, he spent 40 days with them doing this groundwork. And we see here that, that he gave him, or he gave the apostles three things. He gave them commands, he gave them assurance, and he gave them instructions. Commands, assurance, and instructions. So first, the commands that he gave them. Verse 2 says that Jesus was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. <coughs> the apostles never really seemed to grasp their role in redemptive history, at least not until after Pentecost. Um, and really, who would? I mean, if we if we take R.C. Sproul's uh, admonishment to... to um, read existentially to put ourselves in their shoes. Can you imagine being a disciple of Jesus, a, a humble fisherman, and here the Son of God comes and becomes a man and calls you out of your boat, and then and then he dies on a cross, and you think he's dead, and then he raises from the dead, and then he's commissioning you to do all these things, and you're just a humble fisherman? Like, <laughs> my head would be sw- swimming. That's a roller coaster ride for any anybody's lifetime. I just I would love to read the autobiographies of these twelve dudes. I mean, that would be something else. 
But a, a good king will not leave his chosen officers in a state of bewilderment. And so he gives them clear directives. He, it says he gave them commands. And if you look at the ends of the Gospels, you'll find three basic commands that he gives his apostles. Um, all of them kind of indicating that the resurrection isn't the end of the story and the ascension isn't the end of the story. There's more to be told and he's going to go away and these men are going to continue on. So the first command we see is that he calls them to be his witnesses, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to disciple the nations. We all know the Great Commission, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then in Luke, at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, it says, He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So there we have the first command, to to be his witnesses, to be his witnesses to the nations and to his resurrection and to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Second, he calls them to care for his sheep. These men are to be his under-shepherds in his absence. And again, we see the shocking idea that Jesus would allow a a human being to take on something like being an under-shepherd to care for his sheep, even though... They are themselves sheep. John, at the end of John, John 21, after Peter had jumped out of the boat, he saw Jesus, and then they had breakfast together. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said, Do you love me the third time? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. So that, that's the call to Peter, and really Peter's job is to, to head that up, to feed the sheep. But he also gives Peter an indication that this task would be a costly one for him. Because he goes on and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So we see the expense there that that Peter, we know, was crucified upside down. The third command that Jesus gives his apostles at the end of the Gospels is to wait for the Holy Spirit. They need to wait for the Holy Spirit because how could mere men do any of these tasks Alone, how, how could fishermen launch an international school of Christ? How could Peter, the, the Christ denier, lead the other apostles in feeding and caring for the ever-growing church? They, they would need a helper. 
the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commands them to wait for the Holy Spirit. At the end of Luke chapter 24, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in those 40 days, he spent time commanding them, commissioning them, giving them clear directives for their mission ahead. Now, the second piece of groundwork that Jesus does in these 40 days is that he gives them assurance. I was thinking about this. Nothing is more sure than God's word. So if Jesus had rose from the dead, went up into heaven, and, and all that happened was God said so, that would be enough, right? Nothing is more sure than God's word. But he graciously gives us signs and evidence to help us because we are weak in faith. In verse 3 it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. Now, the resurrection, of course, is the linchpin of Christianity. Without it, we're, we're most to be pitied, right? So Peter says in his Pentecost sermon that this Jesus God raised up, of that we all are witnesses. So that's how they see their role, is the apostles are witnesses to the resurrection. Luke tells us in Acts 4, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they bore witness because they witnessed the resurrection. So it says, Jesus gave them many proofs. His resurrection is the foundation and the content of the apostles' message and the basis uh, by which we participate by which we join if we believe now the third thing that jesus gives his disciples is instruction instruction so the post-resurrection accounts of what jesus did and said are are really interesting we've all thought about that question or been asked that question uh, what would you do if you had a month left to live this is what jesus would focus on when he had 40 days left on earth these are the important things, the things he wants to pass along. And what did he speak about with them for those 40 days? It says, he appeared to them for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is, is always on Jesus' mind, it seems. Luke 4, he's healing, he's casting out demons, he's doing all these wonderful things, and the people in that town try to prevent him from leaving. And he says to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom in other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's one of the purposes Jesus was sent for, to preach the kingdom of God. And it was Jesus who told us, Seek first the kingdom of God. And in his parables, we're always telling us the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. That was very important to him. So of all the things that he could have spoken about with his disciples in these last 40 days, this is what he chose to speak about. Uh, no, no doubt because the other elements there, the other commands, the assurance about the resurrection, all of that revolved around the notion that these men would be deeply involved in spreading the gospel of the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the nations, to, to spreading the kingdom of God on earth, or as Matthew prefers, the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
And that to me is a beautiful truth. And one I don't dwell on enough is that I often think about, man, it'd be great if Jesus came back or if I could go to heaven to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, that would be glorious. But there is a sense in which the kingdom of heaven has begun to break in on earth. That's an amazing truth. There's an ever-growing number of people that day by day are being transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son, even now. And even now, because of the foundation laid by the apostles, the word of God is being received in new nations, in new places around the world. As it is, as the word of God, as the Spirit as they hear the word and hear it and receive it with conviction. So we may feel discouraged by the state of affairs in our world or the church at large. We may wonder how Christ could really be reigning, um, how his kingdom is advancing, how, how he could be possibly using us for any good purpose. I'd like to borrow a quote from Kevin DeYoung. He, he said, We cannot bring about the kingdom by political elections, humanitarian good works, environmental stewardship, or the cultivation of the arts. The kingdom comes when and where the king is known. So we may not be able to do much, but we do know the king and we can speak about the king. The book of Acts, perhaps more than any other book, testifies to us about the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ in this world. It begins with a few confused Jewish men in Jerusalem, and it ends with Rome, planted all, with churches planted all around the Mediterranean area. Christ built his kingdom. And interestingly here, and this, this is an important point to me, is that Acts also ends with Paul in prison, headed for a grisly end. But I, I want us to remember and take heart that the victory of the kingdom is not seen in worldly terms. It is seen in the word of testimony about Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, And that word going forth in power and in the Holy Spirit to all the nations through those he has called to himself. And that that kingdom will stand secure for as long as the king sits on the throne. Praise God. Amen.